0: Welcome back to the Pure Cinema Podcast. Hi, Elric.
1: Hey, man. What's going on?
0: Uh, you know, just uh, watching some movies. I've been doing that. And was, uh, it,
1: was it weird being off for a week?
0: It was weird. It was a little weird. Um, but uh, you had a productive week, at least, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I got to, I got out to the Tribeca Film Festival for the first time. Uh saw some pretty cool stuff there and met a couple of pure cinema listeners on the East Coast, which was fun. Uh, that's so cool, one at man. the Alamo Draft House, which was pretty cool. So it's always that's always feels like you're doing something worthwhile.
0: Yeah, if you can reach somebody across the country and across the world or whatever kind of reach we have, I don't even know, but I just thought that was so cool.
1: And it's, and it's cool. I actually think, uh, you know, cause we didn't really know what we had made with the bonus episode, I guess, cause it was just a free form, but it seems like a lot of, uh, film wrecks and you know, I've heard from a lot of people who've checked out movies we we're talking about on that episode. So that is all the thanks we need.
0: Absolutely. No, that was great. It was a lot of fun. I love that we had, <laughs> we had thought it was going to be such a short thing and ended up being one of the <laughs> longest episodes we did, which is I, great. Uh, I mean, like, I, you know, it's a, it's a tribute to how much we care about the listeners and hopefully that, you know people get to check it out in time. Even if you didn't ask a question, maybe there's something in there you might, I mean, we talked about something like 186 movies. so um...
1: <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's yeah. almost comical really. It is
0: kind of ridiculous, but um, you know, there's a lot to be, a lot to be sort of mined from that episode. If you're curious.
1: I think so. Yeah. I think that was a good one. And I think it really shows off uh, both of our tastes, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but I got what, uh, two words for
0: you. Yes. Pussy <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Um, we are talking this week about well, Screen Factory is bringing out Serial Mom on Blu-ray in a nice collector's edition. John Waters' film, and uh, so that was sort of our jumping-off point for an episode. We thought,
1: and especially uh, don't don't think uh, because we did that thing on Screen Factory that it was them buying us off to do an episode. The, we saw this so early in our planning of these episodes. And as soon as I saw our *Serial Mom*, it's 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 not quite the burbs for me, but it's in that conversation of those kinds of movies that just you know somehow hit your sweet spot in terms of humor and just that black comedy gold.
2: Is Beverly Sutton just a sweet suburban housewife? Well, I don't know what it is about today, but I feel great, Cookie. Or is she yeah. *Serial Mom*? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely one of his best movies. I know his mom says it's her favorite of his movies and I think he sort of agrees with her and, and I think he's really happy with it. I think mostly because he had the money to make it. I mean, it was like something like $13 million, which is crazy to me to think of John Waters getting $13 million even in 1994 um, to make a movie. But it turns out pretty great and I, I do think it's one of the more... Um, definitive works of his career. You know, it's just like the culmination of. I, I don't, to me, I just I, it blows my mind that there's a movie where <laughs> where Kathleen Turner is this character, and they've got you know Matthew Lillard. As a kid who's a big Hors- Herschel Gordon Lewis fan, and they show clips of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies in this major Hollywood m- movie. Boy oh, just...
1: and he works in a video store, and you got Ricky Lake.
0: Oh, it's just great. Uh,
1: and Sam Waterston as her husband is brilliant. Like oh. he's so good anchoring the comedy of that movie in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean. I agree with the mom, you know, for me, this is his most rewatchable film by far. And that's the thing, like he has moments of such genius in all his films, how punk they are. But a lot of them for me personally just aren't as rewatchable as this film. This film, Mm -hmm. again, it's one of those movies If it's on. I'll I'll watch it. uh, I think I I also was very interested in true crime. Uh, you know, in college, and you know, uh, and and beyond, and movies and books about true crime. So to see those kind of references treated in such a comic, over the top, satirical way, just totally filled me with joy when I saw this movie. Like that, I can't remember is it a, is it a spread of Ted Bundy or something like that? Just genius. <laughs> uh, but she's also just great. It's like one of the last times where she's just uh, on all, you know, clicking on all uh, engines in a sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, she is fantastic in it, and and you hear I. I one of the special features on the disc uh, that Screen Factory is putting out is a conversation with her and John Waters and Mink Stole, and it's interesting to kind of see her look back on the movie. Um, I still get a sense that she kind of can't believe she made it in a way, um, but man, I, I just think it's one of the best things she ever did. Really, I mean, she she is like the the support structure for that tone that is such a tricky thing to maintain because it's so heightened and so kind of ridiculous but it's very john waters and i feel like he pulls it off in a lot of his movies but almost never as um perfectly i think as he does here i, I just i can't believe it
1: it's, it's partly because i think he has his best actors too true no that's so, definitely. so it's so it's i mean it's super subversive on one hand and then on the other side it's done in such a you know just bright bubbly it could look like legally blonde <laughs> you know on the surface it's that and underneath it's giving you uh, any as dark as anything in any of his films which it just makes it for such a like a fun kind of adventure for, if somebody hasn't seen this film how would you uh, describe the plot basically
0: i mean it's <laughs> it sort of just follows this you know all american suburban family um and then the, the mother of the family played by Kathleen Turner is starts to show like this, (laughs) this sort of underside of her. Uh, and you start to see some of the things that she's doing, like making horrible (laughs) phone calls to make stole, which is hilarious. So funny. There's something about the way that she delivers all the swearing. Um, and she just like, her whole body moves sometimes when she's <laughs> when she says like motherfucker and shit like that cocksucker. I mean, she just really delivers that. Anyway, um, but she, you know, it's one of those things where you watch a character that is, um, sort of thinking things that we might think on a daily basis. Somebody steals your parking spot, and you're just like that son of a bitch. <laughs> but you wouldn't go as far as to carry out a whole revenge plot against them. And you know, some kid tells some teacher tells you that your your kid is got problems and you run them down the parking lot. You know what I mean? Like these are things.
1: Well, i never wear white after Labor Day. You <laughs> just don't do it. You just or, do not do it.
0: You don't do that. You don't, they don't chew gum <laughs> to gum is yeah, apparently yeah. really terrible. Um. Yeah. No. So I mean, she, I
1: think it's jumping on that like, that concept of like, uh, you know, uh, the married woman who might steal something, and she's getting that thrill from stealing, and it's taking it like all the way to yeah. the actual an actual serial killer, and it's kind of incredible.
0: Yeah. It's 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 fun how it escalates and it gets to a, like a courtroom place, and you know, it's it's I don't know. Like I said, it's Patty Hearst
1: got some Patty Hearst. Oh, in there. that's
0: a great bit, man. That's yeah. a great. That's a. Yeah, I don't want to spell that for anybody, but such a great joke and a running joke that he does, and that he cast her is fantastic. Yeah, I mean he's he's spoken about how he's a true crime like fanatic, like he just has a incredibly dense library of true crime books, and you know just knows this stuff so well. And I think that's another reason the movie is so uh, good as far as his filmography is because it's something he really cares about, you know, is into deeply. Um, so he's able to carry it off even better, but yeah, the combination of the actors and the budget and you know, his sensibilities and this true crime angle just make it like his kind of his masterpiece ultimately. I think, I don't know.
1: I think so. I think it's a huge release for uh, Scream Factory. I mean, because it's one of those ones where you would think it might be on the Shout Factory label instead. Yeah. You know, because, because of the tone of the film. So, But I think it's great that it's uh, coming out through them and I think maybe that will help it get discovered by a totally different crowd. You know, people in in the horror world who might not You know, normally uh, watch it thinking it's too broad a comedy, but I think it will, it's totally rewarding on both levels.
0: Well, and I think there'll be some crossover too, as far as, like I said, Herschel Gordon Lewis shows up in the movie, as far as, Mm -hmm. and then there's like a special feature on here about him, Um, you know, and I like the idea of somebody remembering this movie from the 90s and picking up the Blu ray and being like, oh, who is this Herschel Gordon Lewis guy? I kind of remember that Blood Feast clip, but and then maybe going off and finding some Herschel Gordon Lewis movies off of this movie. I think that's a really neat thing that could happen. Um, But yeah, it's got some commentary with waters and Kathleen Turner commentary by uh, waters himself. And he's one of my favorite director commentators. Like he just, he's so much like, it's like you would, you would love to sit and watch any movie with John waters, you know? So Hmm. watching his movies and it's just, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure.
1: Yeah. He's the best. Um, This film, we are lucky enough to have an extra copy of this film that we're going to be giving away, so do check our Facebook and Twitter after the show uh, hits. We'll uh, let you know how you can win it. Uh, And I think it's a little bit before Street Date. Am I right on that?
0: Yes, a little bit. Um,
1: Unless you're listening to this next year.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Which probably most people do. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Um, I'll double-check the Street Date. It may may be a week or so before it actually comes out. yeah, the people might it'll probably end up getting to them around street date, but regardless um it's it's definitely a, something we're going to give away and something for people to enjoy.
1: Yeah, it's it's a keeper. So, uh and we figured probably a lot of our listeners have seen that film, you know, so we don't need to spend too much time going over it as much as we uh love it. Uh we did want to pair it with something up top. Uh, and, you know, I feel like you can go a lot of different directions because of the different implications of the tone of this movie, so I'm very curious to see where you went.
0: I mean, I actually had, like, four different ideas. Um, I think the one I'm going to go with uh, is Bloody Birthday.
2: 1970, three children were born during a total eclipse of the sun. Now, ten years later, they share a terrible compulsion to kill, and no one can stop them. If they decide they don't like you,
0: watch out. I I think this would work with it because although it's less of a straight comedy, it's still pretty crazy. Uh, and and can't I liked be, it a lot. Uh,
1: I I only saw it recently, and it could have been why you heard it recently. Maybe name, a couple of months ago, and yeah. I liked it a lot.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. I mean, the basic idea of the movie, if people don't know, is it's this crazy story about three kids who were all born during this like odd eclipse and somehow it connected them um, psychically and they're all basically homicidal. Um, They're all basically sociopaths (laughs) who like um, are, you know, fucking with adults and planning to kill other kids and, you know, waving guns around and it's, I don't know, it's just not like, it's one of those movies from a period where kids were, treated a little differently or as far as what they were allowed to do and how taboo certain things were I I just don't think you would see this movie made probably now or if you did it would be like an NC-17 or something Um, but and the kids are really good in it they are really good and they're really creepy when they need to be but they're also really kind of funny in how crazy they are Um, but yeah it's so entertaining Um, I think did Severin put this out on blu-ray I'm pretty sure it's a yeah they did yeah they did yeah um so that's definitely i think would be a fun one only because like i said there's there's a level of almost camp to it as far as you know if you watch it it's hard not to laugh at some of the scenes because they're just so crazy and not in a way where i'm just like that's ridiculously made it's effective but it's just so crazy that it it's hard not to just giggle a little i don't know i can't i can't explain well i think
1: you actually have paired it um when you think about it uh serial mom is a film about uh, the least likely uh person you're looking for, for as a serial killer which is the mom of the family there and this is a film about homicidal you know sweet innocent looking kids so it's almost the exact same concept uh but just presented in a different way which there is kind of fun uh, so it's a good pairing um i went with saying quite literal but i actually genuinely believe this would be a great two things to watch back-to-back to back, totally different uh, tones uh it's actually one of my favorite tv movies It's a two-parter called the deliberate stranger oh. and it's the uh based on ann rule's book the stranger beside me but it's the two-part made for tv movie about serial killer ted bundy
2: victim by victim like some kind of killing machine out there tonight the terrifying conclusion
3: That's him, number seven.
2: You're sure?
3: Yeah, I'm positive. Just tell him you didn't do it.
2: I find it absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. Bundy's escaped. He jumped. Theodore is not going to get his kicks out of one this time. He's going to explode. And now,
1: the nightmare continues. Uh, And it's easily my favorite serial killer movie of all of, of any of them because Mark Harmon from NCISI or whatever it is. I don't know. What is, is that? Yeah, that's what
0: yeah, it is, Yeah, right? NCIS, I think.
1: Yeah, um, is, uh, plays Bundy. Frederick Forrester is the kind of cop trying to track him down. Uh, Frederick Forrester, sorry. Uh, and Harmon's just like, literally looks like he was put on this earth to play Bundy, you know? it's He's got the charm, the look. He, he's so close. But <laughs> one funny thing, though, that apparently happened uh, was that after, after this aired, uh, Ted Bundy got like, you know, a thousand times more amount of love letters mm-hmm. uh, pouring into him in jail because uh, – and Ann Rule, the writer, was describing because all these people suddenly thought he was Mark, Mark Harmon. You know, Mark <laughs> Harmon had almost, you know, made it romanticized him in a sense uh, in this thing. But it's it's a really good TV movie and it's particularly good at showing the way that Bundy – the kind of reckless, carefree way he picked up his victims – which I find to be the scariest part of it, which is like you know he'd just put a he'd just put his arm in a little arm sling and walk up to a girl at a you know sunbathing and be like, hey my name's Ted you know um can you help me to my car you know just that's how easy it was because it was a different error of trust between people and uh it it's it's just crazy how many murders he got away with how he you know ended up escaping twice out of jail uh how he defended himself in court, so he was his own lawyer because he actually was a law student, uh had a law degree. So it's a it's a really interesting one. I mean it's still T V movie, so it's not as cinematic on a visual level, I think, but uh definitely worth tracking down. And I think it'd be so fun to watch because I think that's the real that's the serial killer that changed the way we saw it, because if a uh, way we saw serial killers, because before that, you're thinking killers like Ed Gein, who are, you know, more or less hunchbacked and, uh, you know, in, almost feel inbred, you know, uh, living by themselves wearing their mother's skin. That this is not that guy. This guy's wearing, you know, a sweater around his shoulders and hanging out with co eds, you know, and so he looks like, uh, young JFK or something, you know? <laughs> and so it really threw the culture uh, for a whole loop. And I think I think that's, in a sense, what's being uh, kind of deified in Serial Mom, you know, and kind of fetishized, that, that side of pop culture of people that we really shouldn't be turning into pop culture icons. We really shouldn't be making them president, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, shit happens. <laughs> culture, <laughs> cultures allow shit to happen. No, absolutely.
0: No, it's... Uh, pop culture has become... S- even more of a, a factor as far as you know things like what we're talking about happening it's it's the 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 sort of celebrity um just the world of that whole what makes people a celebrity why we are interested in celebrity why we all want to pursue celebrity and how we get there doesn't really seem to matter sometimes um it's fascinating to me although it's very scary um,
1: well, and as you even said the words pop culture, I was thinking it's like pop culture has become culture. And that, yeah. and, how, and how did that happen? Yeah, <laughs> it's not meant to be. It's meant to be pop culture. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway, just in case you missed the title, because I, for the life of me, could not remember. I've seen this like five times and could not remember the title yeah. myself. Uh, I just think Ted Ted Bundy movie. It's called The Deliberate Stranger. It's from 86. Uh, I'm not sure how hard it is fine, but I'm sure it's at least on YouTube. Uh, but it's a it's, a, it's a really cool movie, and I think that would be kind of a, a fun a fun double, especially if you don't know him much about Bundy, who was just one of those, he's one of those guys who, once you go down that rabbit hole, you might start reading up about all
0: these guys. That's cool. Yeah. I remember somehow when this came out, the, how big of an event it was, you know? Yes. But I don't, I don't, don't think I've ever seen it. And I've always been fascinated by Bundy as uh, a character, I guess, as a, one of the great or more, most well-known serial killers ever. Just, he's terrifying in terms of that, charisma and that evil that just oh it's it's Well really they're freaky. just liars. It's the yeah.
1: idea of a liar, a guy who like even with his last breath he's not telling the truth on earth. He's he was lying all the way to the end. Like he, he kept making false promises that he would, you know, lead them to other bodies and help them c- take other killers. I mean, you know, there's some I, I'm I'm sure some of Silence of the Lambs, the setup of interviewing Lecter uh to catch another killer was based on him helping the FBI find the Green River killer, which was another killer that he claimed he'd be able to help them figure out and stuff. And you know, he probably did help a little but a lot of a lot of it is just to try to get a stay of execution you know uh but again and then people are always looking for a reason why these people do this and then and there's no re- there isn't a clear reason there's you know a lot of reasons uh and that's the problem and i and i think it's very difficult to comprehend unfortunately when you watch a movie about it they'll t- try to boil it down to one thing like that one girlfriend who jilted you or you know and clearly that's not enough so yeah. Uh, but this, it's a really good one, it's, and it's a totally different tone, obviously. Yeah, what you are saying about it being a big event, uh, one of the trailers I looked at uh, when kind of getting it for the show, it was great because it's like, you've seen the charming side. Tomorrow he will cut loose. You know, <laughs> just kinda, it's, it's fun to watch uh, that side of it. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's the double pairings. Uh, and from there, what Serial Mom did, and we knew we wanted to go this way, is uh, we're really interested in studying uh today's uh, episode focusing on the dysfunctional families, or how we called them before, fucked up families.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was the we had the episode idea before we even thought about Serial Mob, and suddenly it was like, oh, well, there's something we can connect to it, you know? Exactly,
1: so. exactly. And, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, of all the episodes we've done so far, this was the one, in, in a sense, I was almost most excited about conceptually. And it was also the hardest one to lock the five films, because you start to realize so many movies... Are touching on these kind of themes in some way, and movies that cut across very different genres. Yeah, um, it I, was I, really hard to get five.
0: Absolutely, especially because, and I'll I'll demonstrate with the list a little bit. But I I went outside the I the conventional family dynamic into you know qu- sort of quasi families, you know, units of people that are families. You know, because I feel like that ties in in a way. There is a familiar familial relationship between characters in certain situations in movies, even if they're not related. Um, yeah. And I, I felt, think that's valid. Yeah. So I, so it was fun to kind of push the boundaries and go, okay, this is a movie I really think is interesting. And I, and I think can fit into this slot into this and we'll see if the listeners go for it or not, but, but it'll be fun to talk about anyway.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think I, I know you've you've talked about your daughter multiple times on here, watching movies with her. There's T-shirts being made about what you guys do. <laughs> uh, you know, it's huge. You're huge in Japan. You've got a national holiday.
0: I didn't even uh, know.
1: <laughs> I know now you do. Uh, but uh, like the older you get, and the more you do, kind of settle in that sense, you do start seeing the other side of family. Like as a young person, I didn't think too much about the dysfunction of my own family. You kind of just know. You just it's your everyday life. But once you become a parent you do think about every little thing because you start to realize everything has a consequence. You you're, you have this weird burden of, oh, I don't want to, f- how easy it is to fuck someone up. Uh, you realize just any little thing, you don't know what it's going to do and we're all largely from a generation of you know a couple generations now of divorce uh where and where almost dysfunctions the norm you know like it's not strange that a family is dysfunctional in the in the light sense i'd say every family is dysfunctional uh to to an extent it's just how how fucked up uh on our list we will probably push some of those (laughs) lists that are hopefully worse than any of our families yeah um there's a great Tolstoy quote that I had I'd put uh discovered years ago when I was doing it. I think I did an essay about Blue Velvet and the family when I was in college. I think it was one of the first kind of academic essays I did. Uh, and I remember this quote, so I pulled it up. It's a Tolstoy just says all families are alike. each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I thought that uh, is pretty pretty apt, and we'll probably cover some of the some of the ground we're gonna hit. There's a few classics that you probably will not uh here on today's one that just uh cuz i trust my co-host uh uh royal Tenenbaums is obviously like the ultimate now i think and it's really uh direct lineage of magnificent ambersons uh you know they're very much uh related in that sense um just scream if i say one that you uh <laughs> but i'm this confident that i'm not going to I'm
0: pretty uh, sure we're good
1: and one that we discussed uh i, I almost had to put it on cuz i do think i think it's the best film in this in this if this was a subgenre i think this would be the ultimate and if you still haven't seen it but it came up a few weeks ago uh which is uh festin aka the celebration by thomas vinterberg it came up a little bit when you were discussing um dear, the wendy. dear, dear, dear wendy. wendy and so uh, you know i really think this if you were studying dysfunctional families in cinema i think that's the movie you should go watch straight away because it's probably the worst family ever put on screen but uh <laughs> But because you know, because we touched on, that, I thought I'd leave it. And then you know, the Sawyer's from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I'd say the Sisters from Happiness. Those those are a few that we might not go into today that definitely uh, cover this topic beautifully. So you know, get off our backs. <laughs> I, I don't want to see any comments go. What Royal Tenenbaums? It's like. Yeah, we know.
0: I know. I know. I I feel like we're at a place now where people are understanding the concept of the five films because list and that we're just pulling... There's so many. There's always so many. And so this is by no means, again, a top five. These are just things we want to highlight. And uh, I think people are getting that at this point.
1: I know, know, but that's never going to stop me from uh, preempting because... No, it's true. I mean,
0: we do seem to get a comment almost every week of like, I know it was, but I can't believe you didn't talk about X. And, and you know, that's,
1: that's the nature of lists. Totally, List absolutely. It's always going to end up like that. But uh, I, I think we both like to jump around the the cinematic map quite a bit too, and especially in Constructing 5, I wanted to have five <laughs> very different movies. I was trying not to be repetitive because, you know, we all, our taste sometimes takes you down one particular road. I wanted to kind of mix it up. So, uh, so yeah, so let's get into uh, – I mean, I, I, you don't know what – you know, I assume you had a good childhood – <laughs> sure. i'm gonna go mark, mark Marin now for a second
0: yeah yeah no i mean you know there there are always you know there i think there is no um totally happy family all the time 100 uh, percent. or something's being repressed you know because there's just it's marriage and children it's a difficult uh, Alchemy—it's a diff- difficult combination of things, and I think you're always going to have something that needs to be worked out, just in marriage alone. Um, so, you know, yeah, I—it was—it was a—it was, was a fine childhood, but you know, everybody's got their problems. I think.
1: I just think it's very interesting that you've turned to cinema after this very difficult—that you've said in your words—difficult childhood. You know, you want to. Maybe we could go down that, little, that road just, a little. Let me just let me
0: just lay down on the couch here for a second. <laughs> I. Um,
1: I, I actually likened uh, this this weekend. Somebody, I think I can't remember who I was talking to, but I kind of likened realizing that I never had, did therapy ever. I just never was something that was in my wheelhouse, and I, I'm starting to wonder if podcasting has actually become that for me. That is the substance. Because you're just, it's the talking cure. So you're, if you're Uh, always talking about movies, then maybe that's. Yeah, especially
0: when you're examining thematics. And there's a movie later on this list that actually fucked me up. And it's a movie I've seen before, but this viewing of it Mm. just totally made me go, oh my God, it just was. uh, Yeah. So anyway, there is a therapeutic element to this, hopefully for us and for the listeners on some level, um, just to kind of get you thinking about things. um, Movies are, are, can be passive entertainment or they can be really engaging and they can stick with you for years and months and make, maybe make you change your (laughs) life in some way. I mean, that's one of the powers of cinema, but, uh, I'm curious where you started your list here, sir. What's,
1: yeah. Well, and I will, uh, yeah, just for I think, uh, of all the subgenres we've talked about on the show so far, I've got to say this is one of the ones that I always really identify with. Uh, even even movies that are kind of um, mainstream movies. One that came to mind: the Family Stone. Right. So it's like a mainstream comedy, broad comedy. <laughs> But I remember seeing it in a the theater and and liking it more than I would have if it was, you know, Legally Blonde or something. You know, nothing to throw it back. That I'm really shitting on Legally <laughs> I was gonna Blonde gonna today. Say. <laughs> it got in my bonnet. But uh, <laughs> but no, like that idea of because they're not presenting you with just a traditional. Uh, is it Home for the Holidays? The Jodie Foster one. Yeah. Yeah, which is also great. You know, another movie, these movies where they just give you uh, the family dynamics and then kind of lay bare, even if it's over the top, if the dysfunction is kind of silly or it somehow you can always relate to it. I think because we've all come from someplace in a family, you, any kind of family, even whether you're adopted, uh, you're always, you're going to create a family structure. That's kind of what you were, I think, get, talking about a little earlier. Absolutely. In your list that you there, it's just the human need to surround yourself by something. Uh, so yeah, so actually, you know, number five is a funny one. I haven't seen it in almost 20 years now. It's about 19 years. And when we, when I started doing the list, it popped into my brain and I, I was going to replace it with something I'd seen more recently, but I couldn't shake it. Um, and that's uh, Douglas Sirk's Ridden on the Wind.
2: A toast to, to beauty,
3: the truth, which is anything but beautiful.
0: Oh nice. Uh, from
1: fifty six. And I've seen a f- quite a few of Cirque's films that have maybe better reput there's a couple with, you know, Magnificent Obsession, uh, all that heaven allows, uh, kinda have the best reputations, but I haven't seen a better film than Written on the Wind. Uh, it, because it stayed with me, because it felt at once kind of lurid, but also honest. And that's the interesting thing about Cirque. Sirk. Cirque's famous for those who haven't you know necessarily seen a Circhian melodrama. He's famous for these melodramas, but I didn't learn about him uh, – I, I, I saw it in a film class, and that's that's how I came across it. But I didn't actually uh, stumble onto him first. I, I stumbled upon his work through the second generation of his work, which was uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender. And I started watching all of Fassbender's films, and then I started learning, reading up about him, and realizing all of his films were his interpretations basically of Cirque's films, and that Cirque was this just huge – uh, influence on him and so uh and also of, of course later on todd haynes um what's the julian Moore film um
0: uh safe or mm-hmm. oh, no, oh wow. far, i'm sorry uh... yeah,
1: yeah. Far from heaven, yeah.
0: Yes, sorry.
1: Exactly. You know, you got it. Far from heaven, uh, which is you know a direct remake uh, of All the Heaven Allows, and uh, but with Fassbender's work, you know, it's so biting and real. Uh, he he gets rid of quite a, the feeling of melodrama uh, pretty effectively in a sense. Uh, so I, I, I'm not a big soap opera guy, um, so I'm not sure how I would have felt about it. But in this film, there's something uh, so interesting. So it's basically. Uh, the reason it's so good with the family and why it kind of kind of stuck with me for putting this list together is uh it, it's basically about an oil family uh and it's really about the brother and sister uh who haven't had to do shit in their whole lives because their father was an oil tycoon so their you know their life is you know kind of laid out for them and one uh just an incredible performance easily the best of his career is Robert Stack is just He's one of those, you know, actors you would recognize in just lots of, you know, supporting roles. But in this film, he's he's just incredible as like this alcoholic, uh, you know, kind of womanizing uh, playboy uh, son. And his sister, who's basically uh, portrayed as a total nymphomaniac, uh, you know, she's just completely kind of bonkers. And it's pretty hilarious how far she kind of pushes that, that character uh, played by Dorothy Malone. Uh, and so they're the brother and sister Uh, he he ends up marrying Lauren Bacall who is nothing like the kind of woman you'd imagine uh, that kind of character would end up with and Rock Hudson Uh, Who you know really became famous Through Cirque's films and this is his Best role next to seconds which is you Know totally different kind of film Uh, This I think this is his best uh, Best work and he kind of plays This uh, character who's been Very loyal and has worked for the family Forever Uh, and 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 for The father uh, who owns the oil tycoon uh, Business but he had a thing for Lauren Bacall before Stack marries her so There's all the and then uh, Dorothy Malone The sister wants to marry wants to be with Rock wants to have sex with Rock Hudson and and you get the feeling Robert Steck either wants to have sex with him or, you know, be him. So there's all these and and, and there's always a moment in a in a cirque film with uh with where they you know kind of open the door to to playing with his actual identity secret identity of being a gay man in hollywood which you know but secretly uh and there's always just something circle put in there there'll be a moment that kind of leaves that ambiguity open and that that creates for you know really interesting tension so even though it's melodramatic and i think a lot of people might be put off by that idea uh it is the emotion in these movies especially this one always feel brutally honest like more honest than anything that's shot in a realistic vein, uh, cause these are technicolor just, you know, shot, just stunning movies, uh, color, color films. Um, it's, it's a really interesting movie and, uh, you basically see the kind of the downfall of this te- Texas oil dynasty, you know, uh, they become, you know, alcoholics and infomaniacs, uh, and how basically money, uh, can corrupt, and ruin the dysfunction of the heart of this family because they haven't had to work for anything. And uh, it, it creates this, this festering feel. It, it it would be the best double feature of all time with There Will Be Blood. Like, seriously. <laughs> like Because they're so different. They're totally different. But with the oil and the corruption of the soul as your kind of guiding thing, oh, man, those movies, I think, would just play like gangbusters. Um, but this is one, I think, if you haven't seen it and you've never tried Cirque, I jump in, because it was the first one I had seen. Uh, There's also a reference. uh, It's referenced in Female Trouble by uh, John Waters. So I thought that's kind of a funny connection to our first uh, (laughs) movie. That's awesome.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think he's a big Cirque fan, if I recall.
1: I I would be shocked if he wasn't. Uh, You know, he left a big imprint on a lot of people. I think not... His imprint is definitely not on our current generation. Like, I feel like he is now one of those guys who's like one generation removed where it doesn't seem to be an influence on modern. I haven't, you know, seen besides Todd Haynes.
0: Well, and Tarantino's um, a fan of him, too. Although, I, I don't know. How, yeah, he supposedly likes a lot of Cirque stuff. Magnificent yeah, I feel really like fun. he's talked about Magnificent Obsession at some point and But yeah, Written on the Wind is my favorite Cirque, probably. Oh, cool. and, and one that I'm dying for a Blu ray of because it's still not uh, available on Blu ray. But, um, yeah, it's so again. Outlandish is a word that's going to probably come up a few yeah. more times <laughs> yeah. on this episode, and and there's something about that movie in particular that is so, I mean, so big, uh, in the performances, but in a kind of calculated way that, like you said, delivers. It doesn't. It doesn't take you out of the emotional um, sort of highway of the thing you know I mean it just it still hits you you know but there's there's some pretty crazy scenes there's one in particular with like a model of an oil field with a giant phallic yeah. oil derrick. That's, and she,
1: fa- she fondles it. Yes,
0: it's pretty fucking crazy.
1: I mean, it's it's one of the best. I think that's one of the best laughs you'll ever get in a movie theater. Yeah,
0: I, did, I, I saw it in a theater, and oh my gosh, did the crowd go nuts on that scene. Yeah, it so
1: no, it's. I think it's a good jumping in point, and, and it really <laughs> is perfect for this idea of a more... Melodramatic, but also kind of realistic depiction of how you know, uh, how where some of these dysfunctions in a family could spring from. Yeah, they can spring from you know just being handed everything, and and you know, uh, you know, not to not to keep harping on our president, but you know, anyway, moving on.
0: Yeah, well, but (laughs) I would (laughs) also (laughs) I would also say that it's it's a nice um, sort of showcase for Rock Hudson. All the stuff he did, like Tarnished Angels, oh, that movie is that's a powerful flick. I mean, he did a lot of great work with Cirque and I think for people that think of him as sort of a light and fluffy pillow talk kind of um, movie star kind of actor, he is doing a little bit more. Um, I don't know. I feel like quote unquote real acting in a lot of these movies or acting in a way that I, I feel the same way about seeing Rock Hudson in those movies that I did about seeing John Wayne in Howard Hawks movies. Like mm. I was like, Oh, I, he's okay. But he's like a big, like sort of a, a, uh, A guy whose persona leads first, you know, who you're like, oh, I've heard of him, but you know, whatever, he's a movie star and that doesn't.
1: Or uh, Robert Downey Jr. with James Toback. I think what it is, is a director who sees the person for who they really are and tells them to cut the bullshit of their persona out Yeah. uh, and and really forces them to, you know, maybe touch on something that's actually going on with them. And I, I think, I think that's really the job of the director, you know, to make a great film is to kind of understand the talent they're working with and, uh, cut to the chase. Cause those are, we're talking about actors, especially with Wayne and rock Hudson who are, are largely hiding, under a facade you know yeah uh, a, a caricature almost so when they but when they reveal themselves like in the searchers that you know with ford you know the moments in that movie where he's revealing some you know internal pain uh it's incredible
0: yeah no it's and, and obviously we know that rock hudson was going through a lot of shit as far as mm-hmm. you know dual life kind of stuff and and i feel like he is most effectively able to translate that personal stuff not directly not like I feel like there's parallels for sure but just as far as the acting and the emotional impact of the acting in Tarnished Angels in All That Heaven Allows and Magnificent Obsession and this movie I feel like if you watch those four movies and you don't come away with a different impression of Rock Hudson, if you have one at all, I'd be highly surprised.
1: Well, and seconds because oh seconds, yeah,
0: seconds is a whole other. I say you watch those and then watch seconds if you yeah, can.
1: Seconds is last. seconds is definitely the last thing you'd ever watch of Rock Hudson's. Yeah, and I think it's one of the great movies. I just love that movie with such a passion. But but it's it, again, it could be you know literally him playing off his duality totally. in that film because he's he's got the facade of Rock Hudson and inside he's this old guy yeah. and so. It's, yeah, very interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have one out. I, I'm, we haven't done this in a little while. At least I haven't. I have two movies for my number five slot. I'm going to try and be quick oh, about no, it. no, no. Don't do it. <laughs> but just because they, they both ended up, they have different tie-ins. First of all, they're both released on Code Red DVD. And so I had both of them. And one I had seen and one I hadn't. And they ended up being weird um, sort of parallel versions of each other, in a way. Uh, okay, uh, so let me get to... So the first one's called Julie Darling. Julie!
2: Julie's her name. Terror's her game. Julie Darling. A murderous love story.
0: And this almost came up last time on the bonus episode where we were talking about Sybil Danning movies because this is one of my favorite Sybil Danning movies, but it's really not about her as much as it's about this actress, um, named, what's her name again? Um, Isabel Majehas? I totally screwed that up. I don't know how you say her last name. But anyway, she wasn't in a lot of movies outside of this one. But basically she plays a teenage girl who is unhealthily obsessed with her father, um, in a creepy way, you know, like, and this movie is just nuts. This is a movie that is, from the very first frame, a very first scene is, like, her she has a pet boa constrictor, I think, and so she's like bringing this snake downstairs to her mother and father, who are eating at the dinner, the breakfast table, and she's sort of sneaking the snake under the table to fuck with her mom because she, you know, obviously has an issue with her mom because she's really into her dad, and um, so she's basically scaring the living shit out of her mom with this snake, and and it's super creepy and weird, and and she just always is. Um, kind of playing off... You see her playing off this idea of just being jealous of anybody that her father's involved with and wanting all his attention and stuff. Um, And through sort of a turn of events, her mother passes away. And it sort of has to do with something she sort of facilitated in this creepy way. And so then her dad starts dating Sybil Danning and then um, shit gets heavier. Like, she's just like... she, she. Anyway, I won't go too far into it, but basically know that she is homicidal for civil tanning more or less. Oh, nice. And so it kind of, it really is one of those movies that escalates and it's crazy and there's lots of strange scenes um, that I can't even begin to explain. I saw this movie first uh, screened as part of a roadshow program that Zach Carlson and Lars Nilsson were doing when they were still programming for the Draft House. Um, and they programmed it, I think the New Bev or CineFamily, I can't remember which, but it was a double feature with oh man, I wish I could remember what the other movie was. But this with a crowd was mind-blowing. It's just so crazy that I, I totally couldn't, it's stuck with me for a long time. It's definitely one I know you wanted to see.
1: Yeah, I've, I've been dying to see it, but I promised uh, Patrick Bromley of, of this movie that he would be the one to show it to me. Oh, that's Cause right. Because I know he is a big fan, so I'm holding out for our Sybil-thon, which I <laughs> believe is going to happen this summer, whether we're in the same city or not. We are going to both show each other uh, very specific Sybil Danning movies to blow each other's minds.
0: <laughs> well, you can certainly borrow my copy for Sybil Danning-thon yeah. if you okay. don't have I, it you point. you deal. Um, so that's one and that's a really cool movie and I, I, I'd i love to hear Patrick's thoughts on it because um, I'm not really going too in depth on it because I don't know it's like one of those where I don't part of the joy of it is is watching it unfold and go what the fuck is happening How, this oh, character is yeah. insane yeah. Um, but it's
1: because then you still people still feel like they're discovering it
0: absolutely um, and the other one that I had that been meaning to see that also came out from Cold Red is a movie called Rivals he was a boy who wanted more than a mother mommy I'm frightened can I sleep in your bed Jamie, you're old
2: enough to sleep in your own bed. I know, but just for a little while. Well, if you want, I'll start having nightmares. Like, cuddle up at night with
0: you, huh? And this one, uh, Julie Darling's from 83. This is from 72. And it's... <laughs> Rivals is really interesting, because I thought it was going to be just basically a, a flipped version of Julie Darling, because it's basically... The idea is that Scott J- Jacoby, the, guy, the kid from Bad Ronald, uh, mm, and oh, he, he's got a really good role in Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, too, Um he plays this young boy I think he's like 10 and he's similarly oddly obsessed with his mother uh, and her her dad is out of the picture I, I think he's passed away and so she be, she begins to date this guy played by um, oh man I forgot his name right now he's a comedian from anyway um, she starts to date this guy and of course the kid starts acting strangely about it And uh, but I thought it was going to get really crazy and he'd do all kinds of fucked up shit but it's really much more real it's it's much more like people like because the the um step dad character the the guy that comes into the picture Robert Klein is the comedian I was trying to think of um He's like very bohemian. He runs a tour with a tour bus and she, the mom meets him on this random day on the street in New York and he totally charms her with his spontaneity because he's much less stuffy than all the other guys she's been seeing. And he's a genuinely good and thoughtful dude and he is very patient with the whole situation for a long time. But eventually they there is like a blow up and it's it's earned. It's fully earned and you see kind of both sides of the coin where you're like, yeah, he has been patient, and but I see her point, too, that she wants to kind of keep protecting him, and she's caught in the middle, and it's this whole... It, it's much more emotionally raw and real than I thought it was going to be. So, so it's not uh, heightened in the same way. Um, and there's a lot of little bits of experimental filmmaking. I forget this director didn't make another movie, um, or he hadn't made anything before this, so there's weird little asides. It's strange. One of those movies you watch, and you're like this person doesn't know how a movie is made, but not in a bad way because they're Mm. able to get certain dramatic beats out, but then they'll have little, you know, jump cuts and weird, um, just little montage things that are strange. Anyway, the movie gets very escalated at the end. Um, but in a, in an emotionally impactful way and not like a holy fucking shit way, at least as far as I'm concerned. So it was fun to not fun. It was not fun to watch this movie. It's a, it's a, It's a heavy movie, but like I said, I thought for sure it was just going to be the opposite of Julie, Julie Darling. And it's, it was just a really interesting pairing to see both. So I would say I maybe you would start with rivals, but these two alone would make a nice, an interesting double, I think.
1: Yeah, see, I, I'd never heard of Rivals. so that I mean, I saw the cover uh, when they announced they were releasing them, but it's a movie that wasn't on my radar. So I always think it's great if you can discover a new film while you're putting one of these together.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was kind of looking for. And we were talking about Code Red off mic and just how um, a lot of times if you feel like you've seen everything, you go to their yeah, yeah. library. And this was one I'd never heard of before I saw this DVD, and I'm glad I finally got to watch it.
1: I like to think of it as an island we wash up on uh, <laughs> after our shipwrecked wrecked lives of cinema watching are over. That's a great, um, great metaphor. Yeah. Uh, so not, my number four is a movie I, I love with uh, you know utter passion and have would champion this movie to the end of times. And if I can turn anyone onto it, then all the better. We've already discussed uh, a certain Jack Hill's coffee in our revenge episode. There was no way that Spider Baby was nice. not making my list, or the Maddest Story Ever Told.
3: Let's go in and take a look at the place.
1: Oh, yes. I, I've i been away from the children too long already. Uh, you
3: just uh, follow me, and I'll show you where to park your machine. Uh, but if I may ask a favor, please. Uh, please treat the children tactfully. You see, they're not accustomed to uh, strangers, and they might act wild if,
1: if encouraged. Uh, 1967 it it's a it's a magic little movie and it's it's definitely not for all people i've noticed like over the years of recommending it but i think it's it's really an incredible film because what's so interesting about it, and the thing i've i've really come to about it why i think it is just so utterly unique is uh for one it's an indie film it costs sixty thousand dollars a very small movie uh but it's you know it's shot in black and white in 1967 so that's pretty late for uh, for a black and white film so basically what i what i how i view this film is it seems to be wedged uh perfectly between the universal horror and the feeling of a universal horror movie and the kind of um you know there's certain there's sexuality but it's certainly somewhat chaste and not much gore and screen and then it's transitioning to the kind of movies that are about to come. Within it, there are themes of cannibalism uh, and, you know, dysfunction, the dysfunction of this family. Uh, Just certain ideas that I think are going to come to full fruition in, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills of Eyes that have similarities. And so it feels so utterly unique because it's, it's, I mean, it can almost pass as a kid's movie in a weird way. Uh, but it, but the themes are much darker that are in it, but on the surface it could seem like that. Uh, so it's, this, it's really interesting. It's just kind of wedged in the two, between these two kind of poles of, of what's come before and what's about to come. Uh, it, it very simply, if you've never heard it, uh, it's about this kind of, uh, you know, rundown mansion, Uh, where there's a family who have this problem called the uh, inbred – it's implied that they're inbred – called the the Mary family live with a curse, called the Mary curse, which is the disease that caused them to mentally regress from the age of 10. So even though they will keep physically developing, they start mentally regressing. uh, And uh, their family chauffeur – who has been with the family forever with the parents after the parents have died, uh, keeps looking after them. So it's these three kids, uh, and the family chauffeur is played by Lon Chaney Jr. in his best role, like even better than Wolfman. Uh, I say, You is- got a
0: direct tie to universal movies there
1: exactly exactly yeah yeah and and I think he is at his finest in this I mean this is this is just one of the most kind of it's just such a soft it shows how different he he's such a different actor from his father uh, you know because his father's a genius and I don't think Lon Cheney Jr. is a genius by any means uh, but his father also was hard and as a, a taskmaster and was a uh, you know just this kind of um. you probably have you know just read a couple biographies on him um, and he you know he sounded like a, a hard person to be around and, and a person who expects you know people to be at a hundred around him whereas lon chaney jr seems like um you know a much softer character uh and and it just comes across there's so much uh, vulnerability to this character he plays and he really cares about the kids but he also understands that you know might bad things might happen in the course of trying to protect them uh one of the kids is played by you know the first real role of sid haig who would go on to be a jack hill regular and uh rob zombie regular and uh even appears in jackie brown as a judge uh and he's really interesting in this because he's so physically skinny and weird and he he basically plays someone who's you know the most mentally gone he's the oldest of the kids so he's also he's Ralph and he's just completely bonkers I mean he acts more or less like a uh animal uh in a lot of ways uh and then there's these two uh girls uh played by jill banner and beverly washburn and jill banner uh, especially anyone who watches this movie kind of just kind of captures you with a spell she had a quality you watch it on screen and uh you're just or is it beverly yeah yeah no it's jill Banner. Uh, you're just taken with her and uh and it's you know i think i believe it's Jill Banner or not Beverly Washburn who's who died pretty young and th- ended up with brando at one point but uh, her her career was definitely cut short but uh you know there's scenes uh, early on where she kind of catch captures a postal postman who's kind of looking into their window captures him in a in a kind of pseudo spider web she's created and she she's imagining playing a game like a kid but with two knives and actually slaughters him but she's in her mind playing like a kid's game and so it's it's got that quality the whole way through where it feels like a kid's game uh but then it has like deadly uh, ramifications and so, the movie really just kind of picks up where because because their uh you know parents are no longer there uh there's some distant relatives who think they might be inheriting uh you know the property and they come to meet them for the first time and uh there's a very strange dinner party and you know uh it, it's a it's a really quirky is a perfect you know way to put it. Uh, but there's something about this film that has real, real legs and it it doesn't age. And for a long time, it was thought to be a lost movie. I know in the nineties there was, you know, from the, before the nineties, there was thought that it was just gone. I think there was a VHS copy and that was it. Uh, But then Jack Hill did end up finding a, an original negative and uh, made the copies from that. And so he completely, I'm pretty sure he completely owns the movie. Uh, And if you buy it, he has the rights. And I know our friend, Elijah Drenner, who We've talked about before uh, you know put that disc together, well, not the arrow release, but the original disc, and you know they had i remember you could order it and get like a signed photo of the film from Jack hill it was super cool um but it, yeah, it's just yeah uh, it's just a totally unique movie there's I can't think of anything i mean the credit sequence is a big animation with this playful kid song that feels like monster mash, you know <laughs> so it's you know it's not like anything else I can think of
0: yeah it's it's great, and it's one of the more. I mean, I love Jack Hill in general, but it's yeah. one of the more interesting movies he made, and I don't—I don't know if I could. I might think yeah, I'm trying to think of if I would call it a favorite. It's definitely sort of in a class by itself. Like I love Coffee and I love Switchblade Sisters and all those, but it's just so different than those and such Well, it
1: wasn't a... part of a trend like those True. are those are all, yeah. all the movies he made the woman in cages movies they're all part of a trend that he is probably not the first one starting you know and he's jumping on with corman or, or whatever it was whereas this movie i don't know where it comes from you yeah. know it's <laughs> it's very un- kind of in the same way that carnival souls is one of those films that just feels like it pops into the world and is totally unique and Uh, I had heard that the musical had sprung up from this Like a stage musical But I have never I would love to see it If it did I'd definitely be the target audience from that one That would be
0: nuts Yeah I mean it has a lot of cult cachet to it Because it is so Like you say It comes out of where You you can't even say It's just so not like anything else So I love that about it I love a lot of movies that way And occasionally there's some that are just abrasive But this one um, Yeah it's just so interesting
1: And if you haven't seen it, I really think it's a must. Like whether you like it or not, I think it's a totally worthwhile. And I will say this: it it makes me think that I love, I love it for the fact that it's. I'm saying it's a dysfunctional family because they are a fucked up family. But in the same token, I think they have found a way to be a functional family, and that makes them interesting. Like they, as a unit, the chauffeur stepping in and, uh, you know, trying to work with them. If if outsiders had not come in to the storyline, they could have potentially just remained a functional family uh, you know as as weird as they would seem Uh, you know they basically can't end up as cannibals you know uh so i i think that's a fun fun twist on this idea
0: i agree um my number four is a little bit more conventional uh and it is kind of like a tv movie of the week um but on a you know Hollywood budget sort of level um, and I don't mean to downplay the movie but ultimately it has some some things you would you feel like you might see in that sort of story but it's got a great cast and it's it's R-rated so it gets a little bit more intense than a TV movie so, uh, normally would so I like that about it it's called Born.
2: Mother's crying right now because you're screwing up she still cares about us
3: no no she
2: doesn't hey shut it no you shut it
0: and never touch me and my brother again. And it's from 1984. Um, The main kid in the movie, um, basically it's about a uh, divorced family. Uh, Terry Garr plays the mother, and I love Terry Garr, so that's immediately I'm in. Uh, And then the kids are played by Christopher Collett, who uh, he's in Sleepaway Camp, and I think most people probably remember him from the Manhattan Project, if they remember him. Um, he had like a brief moment of, um, you know, a few bigger movies that he hit with, and then he kind of disappeared. Um, and then Cory a very young Corey Haim, plays the younger brother. So it's mother and two boys. Um, she's struggling with the idea that maybe the husband, the ex-husband, will come back and they'll get back together. But at the beginning of the movie, um, it becomes clear that he's. Actually going to get remarried and she takes kind of a turn emotionally from that and starts um, dating, making some questionable choices in her dating and she ends up with this kind of losery guy played amazingly by Peter Weller.
1: Oh, exactly. exactly. That is never a questionable choice.
0: Yes, <laughs> like normally a voice like that. <laughs> yeah, normally I would say no. I mean, he's played so many um, different types of characters, but yeah, I yeah. he to see him as this very charismatic, almost um, bipolar um, loser, like who has like all he's he's he just he starts showing signs early on of you know having like issues like he has money problems he has a pipe dream about opening a restaurant that he's pulling her into um but he's also trying to be nice to the boys and he is genuine in some ways um but it yeah it's
1: an alternate title because i haven't seen this film but you, you just instantly i'm like checking up the poster as soon as you're talking about it, and it's got weller like with his legs kicked up and it's called moving in <laughs> <laughs> it's got the kids in the background, so it's just like the guy is just moving in. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, it's great in that you know you've got this this dude who is suddenly in your house, and then you know suddenly he's got a pinball machine in the house, and then he's doing rails of cocaine off the pinball machine, and shit's oh, getting man. shit's getting crazy. So it's a movie again. We're talking about escalation uh, that happens, and and it's I mean I just love Peter Weller. I, I think you feel the same way. Oh about
1: yeah, him. yeah. So,
0: so seeing him in this kind of a role is a sort of a turnabout that I find really fascinating. But the rest of the cast is really interesting, too. Um, like, Sarah Jessica Parker plays Christopher Collett's girlfriend, and Robert Downey Jr., in a small role, plays, like, one of his buddies. Um, but it's, you know, it's a very emotional movie. I mean, they're showing Christopher Collett's character dealing with um, his girlfriend. He's dealing with school while all this drama is going on at home, and it it, it definitely hits you, you know? It definitely leaves an impression, like I said. Um but but with this cast, it it elevates material that like could just be normal television movie fare I think. Um and uh there's a nice blu-ray from Olive films you can snag if you're interested in this one. But it's it's I rewatched it for the show and it's still really effective to me. Collet is like he's a really interesting actor in that he can play this kind of smarmy um Beyond precocious because he 's usually a teenager already when he's in these roles, but like very intelligent kid who is like able to sort of figure people out and outsmart people and um, sometimes get himself in trouble with that kind of thing in a very in a way that I find compelling and, and um, dr- drawing of empathy um so he's an interesting actor that you know didn't make that many movies, but I like the ones he did make.
1: And I feel like researching this live. I'm enjoying this. This is my new my new role. Uh, when it's a movie I haven't seen, uh, it's made my the fact that it's it's kind of um, maybe more a bit more real than what the material could be, and it's made by Michael Apted, who made the Seven Up documentary series. Yeah, where where every you know seven years he you know went back and filmed these families. So you want to talk about dysfunctional families? Yeah. There's nothing that's ever been filmed quite like. What he charted, because he went all the way up to, I know he died last year, Michael Apted did, he went all the way up to, I'm trying to, I, I know he went past 40, he might have gone even older than that with by charting these, uh, yeah, 56 up. Oh my gosh, might have been the last I didn't one. Even so imagine, realize he went that far. Yeah, so imagine, you know, so if you're interested in documentary, you you could see him chart people every seven years from the age of seven to 56 and imagine you know the dreams you have at seven and some of those dreams not coming to fulfillment and and the kind of family tensions i haven't seen all of them i've seen a number of them like and and excerpts from a lot of them and they're always pretty powerful so that 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 makes sense you know you, you maybe really want to watch that movie now
0: yeah it's it's interesting it's definitely interesting
1: um, my number three is uh could also have easily been my number one. I, my my next two are both really high regarded films in my canon of just movie love. Uh, this film's definitely the ble- <laughs> the bleakest movie on my list. Uh, uh, this is the tagline I came up for this movie. Uh, the most beautiful misery ever captured on film is <laughs> how I'm gonna talk about Igmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. Oh wow! Uh, from 1972. It is – I've seen a lot of Bergman movies and uh, I like them a lot. Um, There's some I love. There's a few uh, scenes from Marriage and um, Persona and and a number of films. I just really love his more kind of edgier things. None of his movies struck me like Cries and Whispers. Cries and Whispers. when I finally got – and it was late. It was probably maybe six, seven years ago. uh, I saw it and I just – I was struck on two levels. A, it is a ferocious – angry, sad, bleak piece of filmmaking. It's just like su- super powerful on an emotional level, but it's also one of the most beautiful things on a celluloid level uh, and a cinematography level ever captured on film because it's so purposeful. Uh, and he's working with his longtime uh DP Sven nyquist who's just, you know, one of the best in the game who who would go on to also shoot some of Woody Allen's best looking movies that are also very much based on this movie, <laughs> uh like Interiors. You know, Interiors is almost the same setup with the three women.
2: And the film was a, you know, the way it was shot, it was hypnotic, uh, the, the the choice of color and the, the choice to do the subject matter poetically. And he's really a poet. The camera just moves slowly in and out of those rooms and the clocks tick and you're just hypnotized by the movie and the events that occur... And when it's over, uh, even though much of it has been very down, grisly, um, negative material, his his vision of it is so uh, good because he's 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 a genius that he imbues that material with a quality that makes you come away exhilarated because you've been in the presence of fulfilling art rather than just a depressing experience
1: and anyway the the basic gist of it of it is it's uh three sisters uh two of them have come to basically be there for the last days of their dying sister uh who's dying a very painful death uh of cancer and the, in a very rural, isolated home, but these are not three sisters who are close. In fact, you know, there's been secrets that have come up between them that have kind of torn their family apart. And they're probably the most dysfunctional, uh, you know, siblings I've seen in a movie. And it's and it's just it has a couple scenes. It, it, it really plays out like a claustrophobic horror film. Um, not quite as much, you know, as Hour of the Wolf would be his kind of real horror film. But it, it, there's something about the tone of this that it shouldn't. It should just feel like a, you know, a period piece, costume drama, uh, you know, sibling, three sisters and a and a house kind of movie. But no, it feels uh, like a real horror film. Uh, it, it it's very disturbing. It uses a flashback structure to give you more insight what what's going on. With it. But it's also very poetic. It has these incredible use of the color red throughout. Um. And I was looking it up and it was it just there's a great line about how, the design of this film because, you know, it's just got this. And when I say red, it's not like a little bit of red, like the entire <laughs> the entire set uh, is, you know, red walls, red wallpaper, red curtains. Uh, uh, and it's just it's almost overbearing. Uh, and the DP uh, actually I think Bergman said this, uh, I think of the inside of the human soul uh, as a membranous red. And that's in the script <laughs> that Berg. So imagine you're reading the script to this movie and that's what Bergman is saying about the style. So I think the inside of the human cells member red. So they obviously then translated that into the, you know, the aesthetic of the film and, you know, it's got his regular, a uh, couple of his regular actress, uh, Liv Oldman's incredible in it, uh, kind of as the one who kind of is looking, to, you know, for sexual, physical pleasure to kind of replace, you know, uh, emotional pain. Harriet Anderson's great. And Erlen Josephson's always great. But, uh, you know, it's it's a really uh, pretty amazing film, and it shows, in terms of the dysfunctional family, I think it it shows that even if you weren't dysfunctional, just the kind of desperation and bleakness that comes when you have to get together for the end, because it's the end of a life. Um, and you know, even though his films can seem super bleak to a lot of people, I think this one has got a little bit of weird hope to it at the end. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with if you read enough uh, on Bergman, if you get into his work, there's some great. Uh, he wrote a couple great biogra- biographical books about himself, but you know he really doesn't believe in God, and that's the basic gist of all his work. is a is a you know firm staunch kind of belief, <laughs> in a sense, but having to find other things to believe in, you know, like spirit. And so one of these characters you know who's dying you know it does believe in god and the other two don't and it feels like some of the you know kind of ferocity of of anger of is maybe uh towards the one who does believe in god and coming from bergman directly and it's it's pretty interesting but and i just pulled ebert it is in ebert's um great movies list you know that he that one book he put out uh, of one of his favorite movies and is this is a good quote uh Bergman never made another film this painful to see it is to touch the extremes of human feeling. It is so personal, so penetrating of privacy. We almost want to look away. And I'm like, if that doesn't sell you, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is not a fun movie, uh, but it is really one of the best movies I've ever seen in terms of truly, truly when you see a movie and we talk about pure cinema in terms of aesthetics, when you see a movie that you go, whoa, that could only be a movie. There's no other art form. You know, you could have staged this on stage, the drama of it, but not the emotion. The emotion is coming through in the aesthetics and how they're delivering that to an audience. And, so if, if art cinema in terms of aesthetics and uh, design are part of what kind of uh, get you off and you haven't seen this one and maybe you're you've only seen like seventh seal or wild strawberries this is a totally different Bergman and that's the thing I think a lot of people I, I was largely put off by Seventh seal and wild strawberries when I was young when I was 20 I didn't care you know it just seemed old hat to me but when I discovered and and then when I went back to them later I, I appreciated them but these these more modernist uh, films of Bergman's can really uh, are really striking and this family's you know all kinds of uh, <laughs> dub.
0: <laughs> yeah I haven't seen this one since the Criterion DVD came out I was still working at a video store I think it was 2000 ish or something and I remember watching it and being floored by it and I haven't watched it since I think because of whatever emotional impact it had on me um, was so um, so cutting that I was like okay that, well that's people always great talk movie. about
1: censoring uh, violence they, they always talk you know you when Tarantino makes a movie he always gets questioned And the reality is this... You know, I would say no censor this. <laughs> it's <laughs> emotional violence. It's and and I'm I would never say censor anything, but I'm saying like that's the the joke is on the censors, right? Like, you know, no one's going. You know, Quentin Tarantino's violence isn't going to affect anyone in that in a, any dangerous kind of way. But this stuff is penetrating. This stuff will get to you because it's so truthful. And there's a scene of uh physical you could almost say genital mutilation by a woman in this that is like nothing. It's one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in a movie one of the only times in a movie where my jaw dropped and I was like personally like a little disturbed Uh, and you don't expect that from a Bergman movie like you just don't I did not expect it just out of nowhere there's things like that that happen in this movie so um, you know I I, I've got the Criterion Blue and I haven't watched it again yet Uh, maybe like you I've only seen the one time and maybe I'm a little concerned but I I, I, you know I can't recommend it enough if you're um, insane like me (laughs) if you like if you like possession
0: (laughs) (laughs) there you go That'll sell it. No, I mean, I feel the same way. It was it was not a movie where I would say uh, it was a one-timer exactly uh, because it was so well-made. I just remember being incredibly affected by it and feeling like, wow, what a master filmmaker, you know, that he put this thing together and it was just, yeah, remarkable. So, yeah, don't think of it as like, I, I mean, I would never put it in the same category as like a Lars von Trier movie that, for me, I I don't plan to watch on some of those ever again. Um, it's it wasn't like that. It was this other thing. It was just amazing.
1: Yeah, and 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 if you're not familiar with Sven Niqvist and you like great cinematographers, you know he's one that you start looking through his work and he 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 might be really one of the top two or three. I think.
0: Yeah. So for my number three, um, this is one of the ones where I I took some liberties with the idea of family. Uh, this is one that almost came up on the noir episode. Um, but I couldn't find a way to pair it, um, with with one of our other movies, and that movie's Nightmare Alley.
3: Geek guy fascinates me. You are the only one. That's why we got him in the show. How do you get a guy to be a geek? Is that the
1: only one? I, I mean, is a guy born that way? Let me tell you something, kid. When you've been around this county a little longer, you'll end up quit asking questions. From
0: 1947. Oh, I know you're a fan of this one. Yeah, it's a good movie. And um, so I was thinking about it, and it's it's a bit of a stretch, but I think the the basic idea is that it's about a group of carnies and one of them is uh, this guy who he starts sort of low level and then ends up working with uh, a, um, a sort of a mind reading act and he's, he's kind of a conniving shit in that he, um, he starts working with this act and it's Joan Blondell and her, lo, her husband, lover guy, who's like a broken down alcoholic. And they used to be able to do the act where he would work the crowd and she would... They have basically a system of uh, using certain words to signal each other, using emphasis on certain syllables to signal each other. Like when they go through the crowd and say like, this guy's... Uh, somebody's got uh, a watch and he's the 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 person mind reading would be blindfolded and the person going around the crowd would speak to the blindfolded person in a certain way as to signal them i'm holding somebody's watch or i'm holding you know or this question is this kind of thing and i guess they've been able to sort of narrow down the number of questions and and signal each other uh with letters it's crazy so they have this code that they've worked out over the years and that uh this guy played by Tyrone Power um, kind of wants to steal from them so that he can go off and do his own thing with it and make a bunch of money, and um, so he's involved with this Carney family. Uh, he uh is Joan Blondell. He sort of ingratiates himself with her because he's the she's the one who he feels like maybe he can get the code code from. But then there's this other girl that he really likes, this high wire act girl played by Colleen Gray, who is absolutely gorgeous. One of my favorite actresses from this period. She's in, um, the killing. She's, uh, um, Sterling Hayden's girlfriend in the killing. Mm. And she, so she is dating with strong man who also plays a guy that was like this, this, uh, crazy strong, um, dude in murder, my sweet, which came up on the noir episode. Um, so, there's like this incestual sort of relationships, you know, bouncing around in there. And then uh, Tyrone Power finds himself involved with a psychologist. I can't remember how he runs into her, but she starts to, you know, triggering him the idea that, that he could really um, take, take the act on the road. And and he starts to expand out um, what he's doing, but it's sort of a, a rise and fall story. And I won't go too much further in describing it, but, but it's really dark and apparently the source novel is even darker than what's in the movie but um it's it's just re- every time it re- just gets me it just really gets me as far as um like just the way that they the way that they sort of manipulate people and how it's part of their living but that you can sort of take it as a fun thing to do or you can really um take advantage and that the kind of person that will take advantage is often the kind of person that can end up uh, a straggler in a carny situation and and that's how tyron power is and i think this is tyron power's best performance that i've seen he's um he's just... have you
1: ever seen uh, have you ever seen the eddie duchin story
0: Yes, he's good in that too. I like him. Uh, that,
1: that, that's the other one. That, that I remember when I saw that, I was surprised at just kind of the range and Eddie Duchin. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that's a very emotional story like this. Yeah. There's emotional beats to it that are, um. But I don't find and and there's 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 sort of devastating things about both movies. Yeah. He's good in that. It's really good. Um. But I he was another guy that was more star power than actor to me until I saw Nightmare Alley and I was like, okay, well, this this guy's got some something going on. Um, but it's a really great noir, jet black, very fatalistic. Joan Blondell is great. Um, you know, Colin Gray is really good in it too. Um, but yeah, it's just it's an emotionally draining story, and just to kind of see the way that members of this Carney family, especially Tyrone Powers, is, is sort of how he, um, you know, uses and manipulates other people in the group um, is is sad and and resonance. Um, but yeah, like I said, somehow it just felt like a family story or something I could wedge in. So like, well, I, I think
1: the carnies uh, make their own families. That's the whole point of carny life, right? The carny yeah. is family, you know?
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. So
1: I think that makes, t- I have just been reading that, um, David skull book, the monster show, a lot of it focuses on Todd Browning and the making of freaks and that kind of history of horror. But I, you know, freaks is a, is a film that I love in that same way. And it's, again, that's like a family, you know, it's, it's, it really is. Cause Todd Browning was actually, was in the uh, circus. So he, he ran away young, which I didn't realize that about him. So freaks is very much his kind of background. Oh, wow. Um, which surprised me. Uh, it's, 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 a really good book. If anyone's interested in that kind of history, um, I've got really good news for you. I yes. mean. If you happen to be related to Michael Apted... I have tremendous news. He is still alive. <laughs> 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 uh, just one pick ago, I, I proclaimed that he had died. Because uh, somebody somebody from that same world who was working on a series like that died about a year ago. And I remember going, oh, I guess there won't be any more of XYZs. And I was sure it was apted. But uh, so as I was uh, looking when you were talking about that movie, I was like, sure enough, he's still alive. So that is great news. Yeah. Uh, sorry to his family if you suddenly <laughs> uh, were concerned. Uh, usually I'd have to wait for a next week's episode for me to catch a mistake because I don't usually look at my phone. Um, anyway, uh, and you can watch his James Bond film anytime you want, uh, <laughs> which is not one of my favorites. But uh, number two on my list is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite American movies ever made. And that's going to seem like a big call. This uh, th- There's no real reason it's not number one, uh, but uh, something a little wackier at number one. Uh, it is uh, Ang Lee's The Ice Storm. It was 1973, and the climate was changing.
0: can to apply? It's strictly volunteer, of course. The key party? The
2: men put their car keys in a bowl, and at the end of the evening, the women line up and fish them out.
0: How are the parental units functioning these days? Dad's doing his up-with-people routine. Is that good or bad? It's just you develop a sense
2: if things are going to work out or if they won't. I have a husband. I don't particularly feel the need for another sometimes it's not worth the mess
1: and for me this is the exact kind of movie i am concerned is going to disappear because of the super the trend of just you know bigger and bigger superhero movies uh and i don't i don't bemoan them in and of themselves i bemoan what they might set off to not being made uh the 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 death of that 40 million dollar Movie that it, it all but doesn't exist already. I'd say Manchester by the Sea was the first film in a while that made me go, oh, maybe, maybe you know, a, a new companies will start making things like that. Amazon and whatnot. Uh, the Ice Storm is uh in 1973 suburban New Canaan, Connecticut, and it's you know, it's about um, various middle class families experimenting with sex, uh, you know, substance abuse, swinger parties, key parties, uh, and just everyday angst and life, and it is. It is just a movie, kind of like Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut t- t- took two viewings, but it's one of those movies that washed over me. And uh, something about the um, – I was always a big fan of uh, the American writer John Cheever. Raymond Carver as well, but Cheever even more so. We've talked about The Swimmer before, yeah. which is one of his books. And this this is the most Cheever-esque thing I've ever seen in terms of just kind of getting to the – end, it's set in Connecticut too, which his stuff was. The cast is incredible. It's absolutely gorgeously shot uh and it just nails that feeling that uh that 70s vibe uh and so it has everyone you know kevin klein sigourney weaver uh toby Maguire, elijah wood uh joan uh, who's, who plays the bad guy in the born supremacy movies she comes into the joan
0: joan no, 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 Joan. Joan
1: let me think of oh, that. it's gonna kill me. She ends up being the baddie, uh, Joan yeah. Allen. Joan Allen, she's, she's she's incredible in in this film. Uh, it it's one of those movies where, and the reason I put it on my list because because I I take this film as a given that this is one of the best American films ever, like just a total masterpiece. I have met so few people <laughs> since being in America, like a lot of cinephiles, obviously, but average, most people I've met either aren't aware of it or were underwhelmed when they saw it. And I think need to give it a revisit because uh, this film to me is you know top ten. Like somebody said, you know, post nineteen ninety, this is like you know top two I would say for me. Um, and it's and it's got a sequence in it that I wanted to highlight because I I looked at it again and and also you know just to clarify this the concept of pure cinema in a sense not just not just as a as a catch idea but as something that can only be done through through the cinema. And there's a sequence in this where Uh, that kind of just cuts to what the movie's about. So the movie isn't just about one fucked up family. It's about multiple fucked up families and also essentially at the heart of it, how all families are fucked up Uh, and they all have various degrees in that. Like, you know, it's got one storyline as young kids going through, you know, burgeoning sexuality and weird crushes. Uh, You know, it's got uh, middle class people having affairs, but there's a sequence where basically Kevin Klein who is just top form in this, uh, is having an affair with Sigourney Weaver. Uh, And he goes to her house, uh, and they've been sleeping together for a while, and he says something that they're about to have sex and he says something in the middle of the day and he, he says something that kind of turns her off but he doesn't register that it turned her off but we do and she leaves the room and he thinks she's just gone to the bathroom so he's just lying on her bed waterbed or whatever with his boxers waiting for her to come back and she doesn't come back and then you hear her car and he and he looks outside and sees her car leaves and is like oh that's strange. And he's at her house, not the other way around. So that's the weird part. He's at her house, and she's leaving. So that's a little strange. But he he kind of thinks, ah, eh, she must have needed something. So there's, like, shots of him pretending to play golf, and he's just kind of, like, hanging out, you know, a guy try, waiting to get his rocks off with this uh, woman. And he keeps waiting and waiting, and she never returns. Uh, he then, downstairs, unbeknownst to him, uh, they don't realize anyone's home, is his daughter – played by Christina Ricci, uh, who's very young. I think she's meant to be like 14 or something. And she's messing around with the even younger son of Sigourney Weaver's character. She's wearing a Richard Nixon mask and letting him feel her up and stuff. And it's super, super uh, intimate stuff. And it's, you know, totally the kind of stuff you can totally remember from childhood. But it also is like, you know, it's pr- not age appropriate, you know. Uh, what's going on? It's a little weird. And he's wearing, she's wearing a Nixon mask. Super strange. And uh, Kevin Klein walks down there because he's, you know, in this house thinking he's alone. That's not his house. And he's just kind of uh, looking around. He opens the door downstairs to the the basement and catches her his daughter. And he... There's a moment of like weird outrage where he's like super mad at her, but it's also partially masking the fact that he shouldn't be there. Like why? Like, of course, she's going to think, why is my dad here? Uh, but, you know, of course, he's so, he's because of his age, he's allowed to be outraged at her and kind of gloss it over like he's looking for her. Anyway, he he drags her off into the snow. It's all set. It's, it's called Ice Storm. It's all set in the snow. And he's dragging her through kind of the woods and, you know, super mad at her and upset. And they're not able to kind of communicate. And there's this very, you know, she's gone from being a, you know, this young woman in a sense, because there's something sexual playing out. And he's, you know, he's the angry father. And then she steps in a puddle. And he you know, she's going to get kind of freeze because it's so cold and he lifts her up and kind of um, it's hard to describe. But like instead of carrying on her his back, he carries her on the front. So her legs are kind of around him and he lifts her up like she's like a five year old, not a 14 year old. And he carries her home in this one of the most tender, you know, cinematic expressions that feels so real. That I've ever seen in my life. Like it hits me like a ton of fucking bricks. Especially because of what's come before. And it's shown all these different levels. Of relationship to. Between a father and a daughter. You know a husband cheating on his wife. A daughter trying to learn. Figure out what is sexuality. And then how the roles go from just you basically reverse back to as if you're still the person's baby because you're always their baby. And it is as a sequence. It, it's just one of the finest things you'll ever see in a movie. Uh, and it's, and you know, for that alone, uh, and I'm not ruining anything because there's so much in this movie. It's, it's so many storylines, but it's that sequence to me gets at the heart of what I am ultimately like kind of always going on about whether it's being jokingly or not about pure cinema, but a thing that just, you can't, it couldn't, I couldn't read that, you know, and I couldn't see it staged, and it's and it's truly incredible. And there's more than one moment like that in that movie. That's just the one that always kind of comes back. So it's, I think it's one of the best visual, emotional uh, examples of storytelling. Uh, you know, by contemporary filmmakers, and it's very interesting that it's Ang Lee because it's this incredibly. Uh, American uh, story, you know, and especially in 97, this is kind of early in Angley's, uh, you know, uh, making films in America uh, and, e- you know, everyone's terrific in this and there's, and it's also one of the, got one of the best Thanksgiving sequences uh, I've seen on film and I'm always a sucker for the kind of, those kind of holiday moments in these kind of movies. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, it, everyone's fucked up but it, it really gets the heart that, uh, you know, we all are.
0: Yeah, no, there's something about the holidays. Obviously, you have the idea that, Families, often even disparate families, come together at holidays. But there's also this idea that um, at the holidays, you're supposed to be happy. It's a celebration. And that only um, exacerbates any and all stresses going on within those families. So they're forced to even more repress and hide or attempt to hide, or they feel the need to hide um, any um, not-so-great stuff. Um, And I think that is a dramatic catalyst that works really well for this kind of story.
1: Wow. Absolutely, and then was seen last year in my favorite, pretty much my favorite movie of last year, Krisha, would make for a pretty good pairing in a sense because it's, and it's definitely a dysfunctional family all the way through, mm-hmm. but it's also a big Thanksgiving movie and, and, and the pressures involved with if you've been out of the loop of that family for a while to succeed or look good or what, you know, you're catching up with people, how, what's everyone been up to, competition, uh, rivalries, all these things in a family, yeah, I think you're right. I think they all kind of come to a head in these key holidays.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say my number two would pair really well with the ice storm. And I feel like this is probably a uh, double that has gone on at the new Bev at mm. some point, but I can't remember if specifically, but uh, my number two is ordinary people.
2: It's starting all over again. The lying, the covering up, the disappearing for hours. I will not stand for it. I can't stand it.
0: I really can't. That's
2: like are you. They all believe in dreams. I do believe in dreams. Only sometimes I want to know what's happening when you're awake.
1: Ah, yeah, um, of
0: course. which you know gets a it gets kind of a bad rap because it came out in 1980. Robert Redford directed it. It won Best Picture over Raging Bull and, and Elephant Man. <laughs> and Elephant Man, yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's a tough thing to to look at any movie and say, well, but is is it as good as Elephant Man or Raging Bull? Many will disagree with me, but I prefer this movie to either of those movies. And I don't know what that says about me, personally. But this is the one that I watched that totally just punched me in the gut uh, this time. And I've seen it a bunch of times. It's actually one of those movies, you know, uh, Spielberg will talk about how Kubrick movies for him are like... He's like, I challenge you to put on any Kubrick movie and not get totally sucked in and have to finish it. I don't have that with Kubrick, but I have a weird... um, Uh, thing with this movie where when I put it on I end up watching an hour of it um, no matter what. There's almost no movie that I put on and I can't turn off because, uh, you know, especially now the way life is there's just things you have to, you know, step out of a movie for as far as watching at home. But something about Ordinary People is so, um, grabs me that uh, I I always get sucked into it. Um, But it's, this time it was just one of those things where my, my I had this incredible emotional reaction to it. I mean, the idea of the story, just basically, if you don't know, is about a suburban family in Chicago. Uh, The mother's played by Mary Tyler Moore. The father's played by Donald Sutherland. And they have one uh, high school boy played by Timothy Hutton. And they're dealing with the loss of another, their other child has, the older son has passed away. And so they're all fucked up. Uh, but they're trying to keep on this facade of everything's okay, we're getting through it. Um, Timothy Hutton's having nightmares. He's, He's just distraught, and he is not able to deal with it. And, you know, so Donald Sutherland's character finally talks him into seeing a shrink. The shrink is played by Judd Hirsch, and Judd Hirsch is fantastic. He is direct, where everyone else in Timothy Hutton's life is using kid gloves all the time and, and not really getting like, like cutting the shit, if you will. And there's just something about the conversations they have that are so frank. And so, I don't know. I it, it, there's something about the, the, also about the Mary Tyler Moore character who is really going through some stuff and absolutely does not in any way want to address it. And in fact is outraged at the idea that they are even attempting to deal with any issues in their family outside of their unit it's their own personal stuff and why can't they should be able to handle it and there's certainly an older person's attitude about that kind of thing that i think versus using therapy and whatnot i know you said you haven't done therapy i've done therapy and i think uh and i'd like to do more of it to be completely frank um but it's one of those movies you watch it and you're like what am i not dealing with what am i repressing you know how could I be more understanding of my spouse, my children um you know it's just one of those movies that th- there's so many amazing scenes that play out where um two characters are talking, especially Timothy Hutton and Mary Tyler Moore, and they 're not saying anything they're not saying anything of any substance they 're not dealing with the loss of the brother they're they 're just spewing. You know pleasantries at each other. They're 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 doing the equivalent of talking about the weather, you know, as you would to like a, a coworker that you don't really care about or you don't know. Um, and it's just emotionally so devastating to watch those scenes. Um, but it's this quiet devastation that resonates with me in a way. Like I said, that I don't know what this says about me, but it just absolutely destroyed me this time. And I've seen this movie four or five times. Um, but yeah, this this round, it, uh, uh I, I don't know. It, it might just, have been, yeah, you
1: changing, yeah.
0: Definitely me changing, definitely me dealing with, um, I'm trying to think if I, I've watched it, I think I've watched it once since my my daughter's been born, um, but I definitely haven't watched it since my son's been 18 years old. And so there's, there's that whole component of it, the You know, just this whole conundrum of being a parent and um, wanting to protect your child, but, you know, wanting to allow them to be able to emotionally deal with things in their lives, and whether that means getting help from somebody else or working it out on their own or whatever that is. Uh, there's just so much going on in the movie, that, and there's so much amazing acting. Mary Tyler Moore, you know, if you're used to her from her television show, you just immediately, like, have this... A- there's so much anger in the movie too. There's a lot of like rage that's that blows up in certain scenes. You have quiet you know people talking bullshit to each other, just scenes that end up erupting and yelling because there's so much seething under the surface that's not being dealt with and She is probably the most angry character in the movie, but um again really wants to give the outward look of we've we've got this all together we're we're a very happy family and you know that's all you need to know basically um but man did this one really i mean i was just i i cried this is this is a, another movie i would add to my makes me cry movies and emotionally um the just like late spring uh and uh and for you limelight like just one of those movies that for, for days afterwards i was just i was It was just echoing around in my head and making me think about things um and I really love that kind of movie, although it's such an emotional drain to watch not and not in a bad way, it's just in a way that's like wow that was that just opened my mind up in a way that I wasn't expecting kind of.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're dead right about the similarity to Ice Storm. In fact, I can't think of two films probably more connected. I'm sure Ice Storm was probably, by the writers, probably came from, to an extent, that film, because there's so many similarities. Uh, In Ice Storm, there's even a very similar uh, death. Uh, So, uh, it also comes from Donald Sutherland's uh, period where he was only acting in films where one of his kids drowned. Um, <laughs> you know, a very popular period for Donald. Uh, <laughs> uh, don't lo- don't look now, spoilers. Um, but but I I am one of those people who before I saw the movie hated it because uh, I was probably a seventeen year old uh, pompous uh, cinephile who hadn't seen it yet and was outraged that it could have beaten. You know it's such titans because uh, you know that's a, a, just kind of a famous year because Raging Bull's you know incredible and, and and as is Elephant Man and then I saw it and I I felt similarly to you I, I've only seen it that one time but it it floored me emotionally like it's it's an incredible film that said uh, Elephant Man on rewatching this year and I hadn't seen that again is is every part it's equal on an emotional level because elephant man is a surprise too because raging bull is different because i think it's more of a powerhouse of a boxing of a movie and a character study but i don't think it has that emotional level elephant man is 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 one of the most you know devastating and beautiful things kind of ever film so i think they're all i think they're all wonderful movies they don't need to be ranked but i i agree with the ordinary people deserves deserves it you know what i mean in the sense of uh showing something so raw you know especially the loss of a child it's like jesus like you know and don't look now does i think portrays it also in a very interesting way yeah but with, but, but in a genre territory uh this movie it's just and timothy uh, bottoms right no Hutton, uh, Timothy Hunt. timothy Hutton, that's right him bottoms in as uh, uh last picture show um yeah. he he's on un- he's unbelievable in this film and yeah. i see why everyone thought he was going to be such a huge you know as a young young actor he was incredible um, he's still a good actor uh, to, but today but he's he just had that kind of power um great great film yeah. um and and maybe a double feature no one should do yeah
3: i think <laughs> that might tough. be too much
1: that might be too much um <clears throat> but it, but both great films uh, my number one uh, you could have tried to mix it up the kinds of movies that I had in here uh but my number one is just a movie i, I think i put out one largely so people would notice and watch this one if they hadn't they're less likely to have seen it Cult movie, uh, one of those movies that when I saw it, it's an Australian film. When I saw it, I, I just couldn't even believe what I was seeing. Uh, I can't. It's the kind of movie that you can't believe gets through censors or gets through you know financiers and everything. Uh, that movie is called Bad Boy Bubby. From 1993 and every time I say the words bad boy Bubby I always want to then say great tits mum, ninth wonder of the world they are because that's what he says to his mother constantly as he's having sex with his mother and touching her great whoppers as he calls them mum looked after him
2: although sometimes she called him her bad boy Bubby and there was always cat to play with Then one day, hey son, you can call me Pop. Pop came back, and everything changed.
1: Pop, pop, pop. Uh, It is one of the most disturbing and also like beautiful and uplifting movies. A movie that starts this disturbing at the start but ends in this like kind of incredibly strange, surreal, uplifting nature is basically impossible. I think in movies, I think this is one of those uh, tight wire. Uh, tricks that is not achieved very easily and not maybe not that achievable in the American studio system because of how movies are made. Uh, whereas in Australia, you know, probably a lot more freedom. It's directed by Rolf de who I think is one of the under, most underrated. Uh, modern directors i think uh, he could be in conversation should be in conversations where people talk about you know jonathan demme's and um even haneke in an extent because but what i think holds it back is he made films in lots of different genres he tried lots of different things uh but he's a very strong filmmaker but this is his masterpiece this movie you know in terms of wtf bonkers cinema but but it transcends that because it's not just crazy scenes; it's this very emotionally res- resonant story. Uh, so basically, the concept, which will, is enough, should be enough to get you hooked, is that uh, Bubby spent 30 years n- and has never left a one-room apartment with his mother. He's never left the room. He's been told that the outside world has like a post-apocalyptic nuclear holocaust. And you won't survive outside. There's one gas mask they have that occasionally his mom will put on, and she'll go out and bring back food or whatever. But he's been told he wouldn't last, you know, a second outside of this room. And so, and the father's not in the picture um, for these thirty years. And so he stays in. The only uh, amusement he has is one cat that he plays with rather cruelly all the time because he doesn't know anything else and he's got the mind of like you know it seems like a six-year-old and he's a 30-year-old body uh he is it it deals with incest but in the ways that are you know are are strange dark but strangely comical it's you know she's kind of more or less using him for her own pleasures and it's total child abuse uh you know uh plot line but uh what happens is eventually his dad pops in to see her and he meets her for the meets his dad who i think he's a preacher uh and he you know he shows up but i believe the tip off it's it been a while since i saw is that he comes without a gas mask and at a certain point he starts bubby starts to uh think beyond the walls and you know there's a key key part where uh you know it's there's a little matricide uh, involved uh, and some bad things happen to his cat uh, with plastic wrap, which becomes a big kind of visual theme of the movie. Uh, because Bubby's so innocent, he doesn't really understand death, and so when he puts plastic wrap around something's face, he doesn't understand they're gonna die, and he kind of it's a motif throughout. Uh, and he basically the story is the adventure he gets on when he leaves the room. So this this you know this product of the worst possible most dysfunctional family imaginable uh, gets out into the world. He's got crazy crazy hair it's played by this actor nicholas hope which is one of those performances you'll never forget the rest of your life it, it's one of those ones you would instantly can't believe the guy isn't a more uh, commonly recognized name even though he's been on a lot of stuff in australia um and he he basically goes on this venture where it's everything from you know sexual discovery uh to you know uh questions of religion Uh, you know, he, you know, he'll, some guys will, you know, he'll be walking down the middle of the street and not understand streets. And some guys will, yell, get off the street, you bloody bastard or whatever like that. And it culminates in this incredible moment where he's, he's taken all these weird stories and being screamed at and he's really only good at imitating things he, he doesn't really have any original thoughts of himself so everything comes from something he hears um, and you know it, he walks into a bar and gets on stage while this band's playing and he takes the mic and just starts he turns all those sound bites of things that have been yelled at and turns it into this weird song performance he's not trying to sing and he's just saying these things and the band's playing this kind of cool you know almost punk or, or Nick Cavey kind of vibe and it, he's just bringing it all and it all comes out in this crazy Song.
3: Get him! Get him!
2: Get him! Ah, Jesus Christ! Get a fucking thing out of here, you mad bastard!
1: Ah, ah. I've seen it described this way before online, and it's definitely the most apt, which is it's the cult. Or uh, almost exploitation uh, version of Forrest Gump because oh, wow. there's a lot of similarities, but this one's for adults. You know, Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> it's it's a nice film, but it could be for kids. This is very, very much like that character if he was in an X-rated uh, movie. Uh, but it's also really funny. So I'm not doing the justice to humor because the humor is just what makes it. It's it's just ludicrous, insane uh, humor. And then this is like Chopper for me. It's like. I actually I like this film probably even more i Chopper's a great great crime film, great funny film, but this film stuck with me in a it, it's just a little more resonant because it's also really surreal it's kind of like magical realism, maybe a little bit in common with being there as well, but hmm being there so subtle that it's hard to, come, you know what I mean? It's a little hard because his performance is so subtle. This is like the opposite, but it's a similar trajectory. Um, But, you know, it's it's a lot of terrible things happen to him uh, as as he's kind of learning about life, and it's totally inappropriate a lot of the stuff that's said and done, but then it all kind of comes together when we also reflect through that kind of a character, just like they use Forrest Gump as a foil, you know, to show oh the the problems maybe with our society too. They do it in a in a way that's much more original uh, with this, and it's it's an edgy movie, and it's been you know in the cult kind of canon radar in certain part of the world you know it's it's you know it would be heralded as one of the best movies from australia but then you come over here sometimes and you know it might not even be in one of the cult movie but you know these kind of not the ones we talk about danny perry but sometimes somebody will just release a, a book like you know new cult movies you should see and it might not even appear in that where it really absolutely deserves uh, a spot there and it's it, it's it's really kind of an astounding if you, if you like my recommendations in general ever and you check them out this is one I'll stand by completely cuz you'll be you know, you'll be rewarded with a pretty crazy trip of a movie
0: uh, Did Blue Underground put this out on Blu-ray or something like
1: that? I don't know if it was a Blu-ray. I know they definitely did on uh, DVD at one point. It
0: was just a DVD. It was one that I remember almost throwing into my cart at one point, and for some reason I didn't. I don't remember why. I think I just had a lot of stuff in there. I was at the Blue Underground site, and I was like, I've heard of this one, and I've still never seen it. So now it's another one I need to check out.
1: Yeah, and we've joked about doing a, a catch-up episode where we... Oh, maybe it'll be a bonus episode one day where we just watch, say, five things each uh, that the other person said that we hadn't seen, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it because it's, it's its definitely because it's so in that cult canon. It, it feels like it would fit in perfectly with a Razorhead and El Topo for being that kind of a movie where you're like, whoa, <laughs> where did that come from? Nice. Uh, it's great stuff.
0: Well, I mean, it, it doesn't directly tie into my number one, but it does in a way that's like... My number one is a movie that I discovered through cult sections of video stores um, before I'd even knew what the Danny Perry books were. Um, and it's The River's Edge, or River's Edge, rather.
2: There's a very big secret in a small American town. We can't panic, though. We're dead if we panic, okay? You say, Lane, I killed a girl once, I was in love.
0: Uh, another one where I'm taking liberties as far as the family dynamic. I mean, there are fucked up families in it, and these kids are dealing with, um, you know, some issues with their parents. The ones that we see, um, but I did think overall there's again a much more familial bond between um, Keanu Reeves's character and Crispin Glover's character and uh, Daniel Roebuck's character. And Ione Sky, it's just this whole group of high school kids, sort of uh, disenfranchised youth, if you will. Um, I guess what we would have called burnouts at my school in the Midwest, which is a totally reductive and and bullshit way to classify a person. But but that's sort of how we would have looked at it. You know, kids that we assumed were heavy drug users or whatever. Like I, you know, I was a sheltered kid in a lot of ways back then, and I. I'm sure I missed out on meeting and hanging out with some interesting people um, because of it. But um, anyway, the basic story is uh, about um, this this group of kids that hang out together is disrupted by an event in that one of them kills his girlfriend, strangles her to death uh, at the edge of a river, and, and he brings all of them out to see the body. And he is not... <laughs> he's mentally not well obviously and he's ha- he's sort of having trouble dealing with it but he's definitely um got some mental illness going on that is is hard to classify exactly but um so then it becomes a, a scenario of like how does this family group deal with this thing that this part of this group has done and you know um Crispin Glover's character it's, if you haven't seen, if you only know Crispin Glover from back to the future, you really owe it to yourself to see what I think is his best performance ever in a film. And that's in this movie. Um, he is just amazing. Uh, just very Crispin Glover in a lot of ways, but just the way that he, um, sort of spearheads the movement to protect this guy, um, that is, that has done the killing and sort of, Takes on a paternal role, in a way, um, is is pretty fantastic. But yeah, overall, it's just this really. I mean, you could throw it in with a movie like Repo Man, but it's not funny in that way. It's no,
1: I think the yeah, I think the emotion as long exactly.
0: Different. Yeah, it's much darker. It's much more emotional. So the other thing the movie has going for it is is Dennis Hopper, um, who plays this character named Feck, who is like a uh, Vietnam vet who who lives by himself and who has like a blow-up doll that's like his girlfriend, kind of. Um, yeah, she is. <laughs> yeah. That's a uh, hell of a blow-up doll. Yes, indeed. And so both Keanu Reeves's character and Crispin Glover's character go to him for weed. They like to stop by his house and say hello and, tr- and try and score a couple loose joints off of him. And he seems to... Um, be onto them at, at the beginning of the movie, like at the point where he's like, yeah, you guys are just here for the weed. But, um, when the shit hits the fan and they're starting to try and deal with, uh, this, this murder situation, uh, suddenly, <clears throat> suddenly Fak feels like the only adult they can talk to and that they, that will help them, um, in a way that, you know, he's not going to rat them out. He definitely isn't friendly with the cops. So, you know, he sort of enters the role as like uh, enters the group as like a stepfather or again, another paternal figure. If there's a lot of family dynamics in it that are fascinating. Um, But all in all, I just think it's such a, um, again, there's an emotional rawness to it that, and, and sort of a sense of um, what it's like to be young and sort of uh, how, how hard it is to deal with, and process deal with and process emotions at that age. And especially if you are uh, dealing with adults who are also not processing their emotions that well uh, and dealing with their relationships in a mature way. Um, it's just sort of one thing leads to another kind of scenario, but yeah, there's something about it. It's just very dark um, and and the the way that these char- characters interact and I don't know. I can't even quantify what it is about the movie, but it's it's,
1: just... it's a great it's a great. It, the, the Tim Hunter, the director, went on the he did some of the great episodes of uh, Sopranos. I recall uh, was something one thing I saw his name pop up, and, and quite a few other TV. Things. I'm not sure about other movies, uh, but that film is is one of the great. I think youth, youth gone awry. Movies, you know, it'd, it would be a great stand by me double feature because they are total opposites in how like the reaction to a body. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways, like I think that'd be great. But uh, Joshua John Miller, who plays uh, which character was it? He's one of the main characters in it. Um, he plays Tim. In it uh he was also the the boy from near dark uh and he is a screenwriter now he was an actor then yeah he, he's the son of uh, jason miller from the exorcist but he was on our scream our, uh shockwaves episode uh not long ago because he wrote the movie the final girls which was a, a really neat horror film from a couple years ago uh and really fascinating guy but i'm pretty sure we had a couple. Uh, stories about the set of that on that episode that might be worth checking out uh, because it sounds like a pretty wild set, wild some wild personalities on that movie, uh, and you know I I picked up a book of Dennis Hopper interviews while I was in New York uh, because to be honest is I've, I've always loved Dennis Hopper but doing this show has almost um you know it's come to light like if you think about it I think he's been mentioned almost every episode uh yeah. which is pretty unbelievable and and a lot of that is not just his acting a lot of it is his filmmaking and I think that that he's becoming one of those people who in my mind at least is uh it's starting critically to kind of reappraise his place in American film, which is pretty cool. And and, and it's fun when, because just even watching uh, while I was away, I got to see Blue Velvet for the first time in 35, which I'd never seen, um, you know, which I've seen the movie a ton, but I'd never seen in 35. And uh, just watching him as Frank Booth. Uh, unbelievable You're just an unbelievable people just think of it oh it's a big crazy perform-. you know it's a performance but so much more than that you, you, watching it now seeing how wounded the character is and, and, and again we're talking about dysfunctional families uh, it's all about you know let baby fuck mommy you know uh, calling her mommy you know then then in the same sentence changing it to daddy wants to fuck Let's- So he goes from being both baby and daddy, to, you know, so it's got all these layers uh, to what he's going through. It, it's, you know, I think he's a really incredible, interesting artist, and uh, it's just fun when we, you know, uh, get the, when he kind of pops up this many times. That is that is a really terrific movie, um, and it makes me want to see it again. I, I had one honorable mention that was on my list till just about today where I, I knocked it off for saying was uh, a recent movie I discovered called Sunny Boy. Uh, I hadn't seen it. It's definitely in the bad boy Bubby Bubby kind of vein. That's why I, I left it off. Um it's it's super super weird. Uh John Barry, who's a listener of our show, was actually some, the person who uh sent me the copy before this is before the Scream Factory blew, so it was a very obscure but David Carradine, you know, dressed as a woman, uh and uh um yeah, uh, you know, it's just so they basically uh, steal a steal a baby and uh, what is it? Bud, Bud Spencer, uh, <laughs> Bud Spencer is the man. Uh, David Carradine's the woman. Little
2: baby, oh, can I keep
0: him, please? Can I? Help him?
1: uh steals a baby and they start to raise him and but really treat him like a dog and they raise him to be like the family dog and then it cuts to later raised like you know in his 20s and a similar kind of thing to Bad Boy Bobby but he ends up uh, almost like a more messianic character and it becomes uh, it's a. It's just one of the weirder movies that I've ever seen, and especially in the last few years, it's one of the ones I most kind of enjoyed discovering. And it has a beautiful uh, David Carradine song in it that just. I love it. I love. I didn't realize I. I like David Carradine's music too, but uh, it's it's really fun, and that's a Screen Factory disc. If you want to check that out, and and if you haven't got enough watching in this episode I have four great incest movies for you <laughs> uh Bertolucci's La Luna which was also almost on my list it's a great movie uh The Sweet Hereafter, which is yeah just like it was between that and Ice Storm Got Sweet Hereafter. uh The Cement Garden uh which is uh, an interesting brother sister one and The War Zone which was uh Tim Roth's directorial debut and is the bleakest movie I think I've ever seen and it's still very well made but it is just too bleak and all four have tons of incest. So, uh, I didn't, I went light on my incest on my main list, but I know a lot of you are always looking for that little, little extra incest kick. <laughs> so, I'm going to give it to you <laughs> in those four films.
0: Well done. Well done.
1: Uh, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, you know, we're, we're on the nowplayingnetwork.net. Uh, I was—I uh, just did a, a fun interview with. I have no idea if it's ever going to be an episode you'll hear of supporting characters, but I—I I wanted to use this time not to promote the episode as much as to promote what Bill Ackerman's doing and that he's just a really great guy. It was really fun. We met in New York and. And I was uh, on a different time schedule, still three hours kind of late, and it was early morning in in a small hotel room, and my brain was not there, and we might be jumping all over the fucking place. Uh, I hope there's an episode for you to hear one day, but even if there isn't, just know that Supporting Characters is a great show, and Bill is really doing the Lord's work, the cinema Lord's
0: work. Yeah, I look forward, and we've definitely plugged the heck out of that show, but I, I will not stop. He's got a new episode out with, uh, I think, a film programmer, or this guy, Barry, well, S- Barry yeah, Solon.
1: Yeah, who, who ran a theater and also the video store that Bill worked at, and it's a really great, charming episode.
0: Yeah, I need to check this one out. It's It's going to be happening this week. But, um, yeah, I, I'm sure there's something, some episode that can be taken from whatever it is you said.
1: Also, while well, I'm also used to conversation, you know, like we have or I'm, I'm interviewing someone usually. So it was very unusual for me to be the person being asked questions, even though most of it was conversation. So I, I've literally forgotten everything. I have no <laughs> idea what we've we talked about. Uh, all I know is that he is a saint and I'm going to thank him because he was able to find me a uh, the cut version, the U.S. version of uh, possession, which is, you know, doesn't exist anymore anywhere anymore and he found it at one of these like conventions i think it was chiller saying so he's sending that to me and that's saying i've been wanting to write a little thing about the difference between the film so thanks for that bill and uh keep doing what you're doing absolutely and uh we'll be back with a very exciting episode uh next week the thing we're really excited about uh we won't uh drop what it is yet just in case yeah you never (laughs) know you never know know. uh but we have two more episodes after this one Uh, this is uh uh to take us to the magical 12 and then uh and then there'll be a little break but there's some great stuff ahead
3: Sit round a fire with this cup of brew, a fiend and a werewolf on each side of you. This cannibal orgy is strange to behold, and the maddest story ever told.